0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, Journey Church. Good morning, those of you who are first time with us, second time, third time, those of you joining us online or sometime later on in the week or in the month or who knows how long Uh, That recording will be on our website, but welcome, we're glad you're here, and remember that word, remember that final line, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. You're going to need that, and you're going to need to recall that to mind as we unpack our text this morning. What I'm about to tell you is a memory that I, I have no recollection of whatsoever, and yet it is true, I trust my mother's testimony about it. Little Jimmy Roden, in a blind fit of rage, erased from my mind, and yet she watched it unfold in real time. Here's the context. Second grade, Mrs. Van Valer's class at Ingleside Elementary School. Uh, Mrs. Van Valer was going to be out of town for three days, and so she took a vote to uh, the second grade class. Who do you want to be? The substitute teacher. And everyone started to chant... Mrs. Roden, Mrs. Roden, and I had no, uh, no knowledge that my mom had become so famous in the Scottsdale public school system as a substitute teacher, but lo and behold, she was famous, and Mrs. Van Baylor wrote a note, and I took it home to my mom, and my mom agreed, and I will tell you this, it was the three best days of my second grade experience, my mom was awesome, she had guest speakers, special projects. It was a blast. But what my mom told me about myself occurred in those three days. She said that a kid was pestering me, and that I hit a boiling point, and I flew into a blind fit of rage and absolutely destroyed him physically. And this is an enigma to me, because at the same time, my mom would say that out of her six children, I was one of the easiest, easy going, high tolerance, just roll with it. And yet, there I was, and I can't remember the event. I'd like to say that it was an isolated incident, but I can't. I'd like to say that it was limited to childhood, but it wasn't. I'd like to say... Um, And blame it on the fact that I was a youngest child, runt, and I was picked on and teased and bullied, but I won't. Because here's the reality. I still get triggered. I have a temper. Uh, I I go off the hook. My wife actually says that there are topics that she can bring up where I get, quote, landminey. And, and with my stress goes up and, and it seems like those triggers come to the surface and the tripwires and so on and so forth. The truth is I was born in sin. I was born a sinner. And not only was I a sinner, but I have expressed that sin nature in many different ways. Anger being one of those ways. And you might say, hey, that's no big deal, Right. Don't we all get triggered now and again? Perhaps you can identify with this driving in Tucson. And if you're younger and you've got a job and you need to get somewhere, maybe it's in the winter where we have more snowbirds, and you just go crazy. You look and it's like, okay, so there's like a green arrow, but there's no red arrow and the light's green. Read the book. You can go halfway into the intersection. And yet there's people that are actually wait out a stoplight on a green light and they'll stay behind and they won't go through, they won't complete, they'll jam up the whole traffic, and they'll wait and wait and wait until the green arrow. And you're like, you need to go to driving school. I'm in a hurry. And you think things like, you flipping idiot. I mean, can you feel it? Oh, I'm not this isn't about me, this is about you, right? Uh, But you have those moments, those things that just drive you crazy in these thoughts or these words. Ask my son Timothy. He's with me in the car sometimes. And he's like, Dad, why are you so upset? Well, Tim, let me teach you about driving. And uh, it's a political season, right? Election season again. And are you at times tempted to, to think, you immoral fools, and you, you, you just get angry with who people are voting for and the things that they're actually defending. Can you resonate with that? Do you feel it? Maybe it's with your your wife, your husband, your children. Man, they're just—if they just do things right, you look at at the refrigerator and, and like there's a glass jar teetering. So when you open it, boom! Who did that? You're just so frustrated if everyone thought through things like me. Life would be much better. And you feel like you have the right to feel this deep animosity, this anger, this contempt. Well, you're here and you go, yeah, but isn't that just about being human? We all go there sometimes and um, it's just life. Little friction, no big deal. We survived it, and we're in church now. And we're singing to Jesus. And it's all good. uh, Oh, we did that, but that's all back there. We're good. And that's just a normal part of life. Are you sure about that? That dismissive attitude toward the thing lurking under the surface. Well, we're in week 12 uh, in our sermon on the mount sermon series if you look back we actually covered the eight beatitudes and what were the eight beatitudes they were eight character qualities of the kind of person all eight character qualities of the kind of person that lives up and into the kingdom of god kind of life and then after that we looked at the ministry and influence of the children of God, the children of the kingdom of heaven, and their impact in a very uh, decadent, rotten, and dark world. We are salt and light. And then last week, Kyle Peart unpacked what really is the central text Of the central text. The central text of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're about to look at, I need you to understand, is underpinned and explained by that teaching. In fact, the next six topics, the next six sermons, are Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, illustrating what we learned last Week. These are illustrations, areas where this principle must apply if we are to live as children of the kingdom of heaven. So in order to go forward, we need to do a quick review, read that scripture, and look at the central idea of that scripture. So if you have your Bibles, it will also be up here on the screen, starting with Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through verse 20. And understand this. Um, All the people gathered around Jesus, his disciples being the closest, they're all asking this question because um, likely all of them are Jews. They're Jewish. They've been taught in synagogue and in temple all their life certain things by three kinds of people. Scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis. They've been taught the law of Moses and the prophets. Now they're listening to this new rabbi and they're asking this question. Anything that he says must be compared with the law and the prophets and what we've learned about those. So they're wondering, is he about to teach us something brand new, willy-nilly, abolish all of that old covenant stuff? Where does he line up with this and Jesus knows that this is the question that they are all, all asking. So he says these words, do not think, don't think it for a moment that I've come to abolish, to do away with, to, to uh, uh, push it a- aside. Um, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Um, this is not the ceremonial law. I can prove that. I'm not going to take time to do that. The, the kind of Ten Commandments kind of law. The eternal moral code of righteousness. And then when he says the law and the prophets, what he means by that is uh, scriptural interpretations of not the letter of that that law, but the spirit of that law. Don't think that I came to do away with that. I don't bring you a new law. I don't have a new commandment. I am not brushing those aside. But I've come to actually fulfill them, exactly what is written, exactly for what it means. And that's what he says here. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, that's like a comma or a period, not even a punctuation mark will pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So there are children of the kingdom that are actually working against the gospel because they are dumbing down, abolishing, pushing aside, and relaxing the moral code of God. And he says, they're going to actually have a diminished existence in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, but whoever teaches, does them, and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, whose, whose feet are on fire today? Mine are. Because I'm the one strutting around saying, I'm about to tell you what this means. Jesus was talking about me. But he's also talking about you. Your life, your witness, your example, your testimony in your marriage, your testimony to your children. People are watching. Your theology In real time. And you say, it's not that big a deal. We all slip up. Uh, Jesus died for that. No big deal. Go on as needed. And you minimize those kinds of things. Be careful. There are consequences for that kind of laxed attitude. Jesus says, though, the ones that get it right, that live it and teach others will be called great. But then watch this, because this is the mic drop. This is where the, the six illustrations flow out of in helping us understand what he means here. But this is what it says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you think that I came to abolish and brush away the law and in the, in the, in the, the, the prophets? Nope, I'm actually telling you Your righteousness is going to have to be even better than the professional, most psycho-religious people you have ever met. It's got to be better than that. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't even get in. And that had to be the most stunning declaration of all. Dear God, we are screwed. Can't do it. Over the top. What are we to do with this statement? A righteousness that exceeds or you will never enter. Here's what we know for sure. It takes righteousness to enter. And a kind of righteousness that is so extremely high, so perfect... And so beyond my ability, that's the kind of righteousness that is required. This is not some cheap, uh, repeat after me sinner's prayer, sweep it under the rug, fake it till you make it hypocritical, pray the rosary, memorize the catechism, keep the Sabbath or Lent kind of righteousness. All the while you're a hypocrite in your marriage, you don't know how to love your wife, you don't know how to love your husband, you don't know how to bless your children. You go to the office and you're just as worldly and backstabbing as the next guy. It's got to be better than that. It can't be faked through some kind of religious activity that's on the surface. It must be deeper and better. It must exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the kind of person that will enter. The kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on to give six corrective analogies or examples. This is what I'm talking about. You ready? Because the first one has to do with my blind fit of rage. The first has to do with my condemning psycho attitude on the roads of Tucson. The first one has to do with the subject of murder. First off here is you need to understand what murder is. The commandment is not, thou shalt not kill. Don't let anyone get away with that. Nonsense. There are legitimate reasons to take human life, even commandments in the scripture. What we are talking about is the shedding of innocent blood. Many examples And and things that should just be obvious. That there are reasons why blood must be shed. A few of those mentioned in the scripture. uh, Just war. Capital punishment. Police actions. Protection of self and loved ones. Are all examples of the righteous use of deadly force. Thou shalt not commit murder. Do not shed innocent blood. It's the first crime that was ever committed recorded in Genesis 4. Cain jealous of his brother and that God accepted his sacrifice and not his own. And in that jealousy, he takes the life of his brother. He sheds innocent blood even before it was codified in writing. It was wrong even then. Long before the Ten Commandments were given... Uh, as Noah and the ark landed and, and the, the sons, Shem, Japheth, and their, their wives came out of the ark, God had to say, hey, now listen, this is why I wiped it out, and I'm going to tell you this right now. Do not shed innocent blood. We go on several hundred years later, not once but twice, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, commandment number five, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter five. God had to say it twice. Thou shalt not commit murder. Yet the scriptures are filled with murderers. Murderers like I mentioned Cain, uh, Lamech, Pharaoh, and even David. The man after God's own heart. And many, many more. No, we cannot blame him. It was Jesus who said, that it is lucifer the devil himself that is the original murderer in John chapter 8. Now I want you to understand all of Jesus's listeners are very very familiar with this commandment as well as the consequences. And they're thinking in their minds, "Oh, we've actually met that standard. We went to synagogue. We heard what they said." Really? You're in here today and you go, I've never shed innocent blood. I'm off the hook. I'm good. That was an easy one. I am not a murderer, really. Because watch what Jesus does with this commandment, not as one interpreting the law of Moses, but as the one who personally gave Moses the commandment. Here's what I really meant. In my pre-incarnate state, as I moved through Moses, met him on the mountain top, and gave him the commandment. This is the spirit of the law, this is what he says. Verse 21, you have heard it said from those of old, or to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come quickly or come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. So when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and in the, in the context of this example of murder, this is what it looks like. It is not just the physical act of the shedding of innocent blood. It is far deeper than that. And that brings us to our bottom line for our message today, and really Bottom line for our next six sermons. Oh, they might be monkeyed with or toyed or changed up, but here's our bottom line, is this, that a righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness above the letter, beneath the surface, and beyond the prohibition. One more time, a righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness above the letter, beneath the surface, and beyond the prohibition. That's the kind of perfection that we must attain to. To enter the kingdom of heaven. What the heck? I mean, this is like extreme. When we, when we talk about the letter, we're talking about the letter of the law. When you hear the word law, I don't want you to think about the bony finger judge looking down from the bench condemning you. I want you to think what the law really was. It's a set of instructions to provide for you and to protect you. But guess what? It's not just to keep the minimal standard of the actual external activity, the letter of the law. It's got to go above that. It's beneath the surface of external conformity. It's got to be beneath that. And then finally, it's not just the prohibition of, of, of don't do the bad thing. There's actually must be a positive pursuit in the heart toward the ultimate expression of goodness. So again, it's above the letter, beneath the surface, and beyond the prohibition. Let's actually just kind of look back through the text and see how this unfolds. Um, how the bottom line states it. Here's the first sub-point that unpacks that, that first uh, quality. Is kingdom hearts, kingdom hearts, children of the kingdom... Live above the letter of the law. Do not murder. They live above that. There's more to it. This is uh, found when, when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. I know this is what they taught you in synagogue. I know that this is how they framed it. You shall not murder. True. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, what is he doing here? Well, let's go a little bit phrase by phrase. When he says, you've heard it said, notice he did not say, like he usually does, truly, truly, I say to you, or it stands written. He says, you've heard about this. And what he's referring to and what he's about ready to correct is tradition. Listen, Journey Church, there's a lot we can learn from church history. A lot we can learn from from, uh, catechisms and statements of faith. But guess what comes first always? It stands written. And if you can't back it up with clear scripture, back down. Because now you're talking tradition. It might be true. It might be valuable. It might be a correct interpretation, but it is not authoritative in the way the scripture is authoritative. So Jesus is about ready to to correct, contradict, not the law and the prophets, but about those who for centuries have twisted the scriptures. You shall not murder. Good. They got one right. They're teaching the law, correct? The problem is not in the commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. The problem is what they are adding to and taking away from it in their explanation of it. They say, whoever murders, and here's the addition and subtraction all in one little statement. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment is actually a misquote, not only is it quoting a scripture that is dealing with civil society of Israel, they've actually twisted the, the mandate of capital punishment and said, yeah, you're just going to go before the judge to talk about that problem. Uh, here's my proof. Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. Yeah, that's a civil offense. They're talking about society. So they're, they're, they're linking it with, they've already linked it with, a societal statement. Civil uh, issue. Follow? But then secondly, instead of shall be put to death, they minimized it to the word judgment. So what are they doing in, in all of this adding and subtracting? Is they're reducing and emptying the law and the prophets of its spiritual content. They're reducing it. They're making it manageable. Simplifying it to the point where it's not true. Uh, See, the scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis constantly reduced and relaxed the requirements of God's instructions while extending the permissions of his standard of holiness so you could get away with more. You could flex them and stretch and relax your way in to the standard of holiness, which is not holiness at all. They were torturing the beauty of what God had for us in the law, emptying of its spiritual content and reducing it to the letter of the law. Um, In college, especially my freshman year, I went to this place called the master's college, and they had a rule no blue jeans. No blue jeans. Kind of dumb rule. We preach in blue jeans now. But the idea was that there were all these uh, wonderful neighbors that thought these Christian college kids were so wonderful because they all dressed up. And so this was our witness and our testimony so that neighbors didn't get mad when we had soccer games that were loud. And so it was kind of a bribery. Look at all those nice uh, spiritual young people in slacks. You couldn't wear blue jeans. And I would go to uh, dorm meetings and all of these these. Guys, I mean, they're just real guys, right? And they'd be asked again and again and again, every door meeting, I got a question. Can we wear blue jeans? Are they blue jeans? Yes. No, you can't wear blue jeans. Got a question. Question from the back, what if they're a brand new pair of unwashed blue jeans? Are they blue jeans? Yeah. No, you can't wear blue jeans. And on and on and on. And I'm, seriously, they, they'd figure out like 12 questions. They weren't being, they were actually interested in how they could wear blue jeans. And I'm sitting there just going, good grief, you got a problem with, the, with the, the rule, do what I do. I wore black jeans, white jeans, the most gosh-awful green jeans, and the most horrific, set-on-fire-from-hell yellow jeans. I mean, it was worse than any good pair of blue jeans you could possibly imagine. And I just walk around and laugh like, that's the rule, I'm under the letter of the law. And uh, it was not the spirit of the law. But I was absolutely, I was not sent home to change my jeans. You couldn't do it because I nailed it. Ha! Don't ask the dorm person. Don't ask your RA. Just do this. All right, now here's the deal. That's playing games, right? And God doesn't care about your blue jeans. But no one's going to get away with those kinds of silly little games when we come to the judgment. And God is not going to hold us account for the letter of the law. He's going to look straight to the spirit of the law. And that's where the scribes and the Pharisees were off. And this is why Jesus says, but I say to you, but I say to you, this is what was meant when I gave this to Moses or Jeremiah. This is what I meant. The great I am had not only the letter, but the spirit of the law in mind and this was the righteousness that would exceed that of the scribes and the pharisees it must be above the letter of the law here's the second thing that the kingdom hearts flourish beneath the surface of external conformity not only is it living above the letter but it's living beneath the surface and we see this unpacked so beautifully with three different examples of Jesus when he says, you're angry with your brother, the same thing that you said, murder would get you in trouble with the local official, because that's what the, the um, court meant, that you're going to be in trouble uh, to the ju- or liable to the judgment. That's the local authority that the, the Pharisees were minimized. You commit murder, you're going to have to go to your local justice of the peace. And Jesus goes, yeah, anger with your brother is enough to trigger that one. He goes on to say, You say you insult your brother in the Aramaic, in some translations, have racha. Racha. And this is an insult to the way God made you. Your IQ specifically. Translate it means you empty headed idiot. Rocks for brains. Low IQ. You're a hick. A country bumpkin a hillbilly, you stupid. It's these kinds of insults, of insulting the way God made someone and gave them high or medium or low IQ. And he goes, you move to that stage of the game, you walk one step closer to big trouble, now you're going to the supreme court of the Jews. In fact, the word that says the council in the Greek is Sanhedrin. Look it up. It's a compound word that means seated together in what Jesus is referring to. And everyone knows, the 71. And the high priest is the CEO of the 71. This is the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. This is the group that put Jesus on trial and condemned him to death. And how'd they do it? Because they met the letter of the law and they knew if well, if we get caught, there's no higher court. We can do this. We're the supreme authority in the land, they thought. But Jesus' point is this. You say, raka, you idiot, you're going to the Sanhedrin. That's how serious that is. But then he has one more. He says, you say to your brother, you fool. In the Greek, it's moros, where we get the word moron. And we think, oh, isn't that IQ? No, it actually means Godless, reprobate, immoral, irreligious, godless person. So now instead of insulting the IQ and how God put the person together, now you're judging their character with that insult. And you go, you think that it's, it's uh, bad enough to be angry at your brother or saying, idiot, insulting their intelligence. You do this one, and guess what? You're worthy of... Of the fire of hell Um, underneath that word fire of hell is Gehenna Gehenna was uh, the Hinnom Valley that is if you're looking at a map of Jerusalem to the southeast there was a valley ancient valley that was an environmental catastrophe zone a train wreck. They dumped bodies. They dumped dead things. They dumped their trash. They burned garbage. And day and night, if the wind shifted, the stench of Gehenna would come into the walled city of Jerusalem. Everyone knew. Jesus used this metaphor many, many times. He talked about Gehenna. Many times translated just hell in our, in our New Testament. And what is Jesus saying there? You think murder is just hell. The shedding of innocent blood. Let's actually talk about where murder comes from, and what I'm going to hold each person accountable for. It's fascinating. in the, in the first one, angry with his brother, we're not just talking about words, in um, actually stabbing or slashing or punching, kicking, shooting. Now we're just talking about seething. Now we're talking about thoughts, and we're talking about attitudes, and we're talking about emotions. And so when we talk about a righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness above the letter and beneath the surface. We're talking beneath the surface of your activities, your behaviors, the things that people can observe, the words that you say, that you're just sitting there and you go, but I'm keeping it to myself. I'm good. Nobody knows that I'm I'm dealing with this. I cannot stand my husband. And God is watching. He sees right through it and says, And it's that that I'm going to actually have to judge you for. It's beneath the surface. But guess what? Children of the kingdom love to live above the letter and desperately desire to live and flourish beneath the surface of external conformity. Can I give you a a real heads up quick, quick here? All anger is not sin. Just as all killing is not murder. Okay? In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4:27 or 26 actually says, "Be angry and do not sin." So these are mutually exclusive. Anger is dangerous; it's always dangerous. I'm going to tell you, it's always dang- dangerous, but it's not always immoral. James, the brother of Jesus, would say, "Let each of you be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger." You got to be really careful with that emotion, with that attitude. With that thinking, it's always dangerous, not always improper or immoral. Jesus got angry. And why do I point that out? Because you know what? There are some things in this world as salt and light that we need to be angry about. But can I make it real simple and you oh, I heard that one before. Please don't let this just become like, oh, yeah, I heard that. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Plain and simple. I've had people actually argue against that. No, you got to kind of hate the sinner too. And then they point to proof texts in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Those are image bearers. They're made in the image of God. You'd be frustrated and angry with the choices that they make. But to nurture a compassion and love in the way God says it, that he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so we must nurture a compassion and a kindness toward blind, sinful souls. And to actually understand that but by the grace of God, there go I. That's who I was, that's who I would be, that's who I would become. Were it not for the grace and goodness and kindness of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, not all anger. Some translations actually include uh, angry without cause. And here's the deal, the oldest and best manuscripts don't include that. However, it shows up in many manuscripts, and and we don't know if these were the original words of Jesus, but we do know that this was his intent. That you are angry at your brother or a human being without cause. You're angry with them. You can't stand them. You hate them instead of what they did. Or the way they live. Or who they've harmed. That's the heart behind the question. And please understand that this is what Jesus looks at and sees. Matthew 15, 19. Jesus said, for it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's out of the heart. The seeds of murder start in here. So be careful what, with what is in here. Our righteousness must be Above the letter and below the surface. Um, John, the apostle in 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. There it is. It's an attitude of the heart. You've already become guilty of the crime. And guess what? God sees it all. If you think I can kind of explain it away or hide it and didn't come out, this is what the scripture says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then you go, that's Old Testament. New Testament, it's the spirit of Christ speaking. The ascended Christ says in Revelation 2.23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each one of you according to your deeds. God is watching the heart, not just the hands. So, again, children of the kingdom love to live above the letter and want to conform below the surface, but finally, kingdom hearts go beyond the prohibition to the pursuit of positive goodness. They go beyond the prohibition to the pursuit of positive goodness. that 's where this last section comes from. Jesus is changing the formula uh, and saying it can 't just be don't hate, don't, don't uh, have contempt, you know, just suppress or fix or go see a counselor or your pastor, pray it away. He's saying, that's not enough just to, just to get rid of that ickiness. There must be a positive pursuit. You don't feel anything negative in your heart? You're not done yet. Listen to the, the analogies, two of them. Two illustrations, one religious, other civic. The way I see this is one is the example, and the second illustration amplifies the urgency, how important God sees this. So here's what he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar. So we're talking about temple worship. Old Covenant, I I believe there's a direct one-for-one correlation in this context for church worship. You're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, you remember that a brother has something against you. You don't have anything against them. Your heart's good. You're not hating them. You're not angry at them. But in that moment, you go, wow, I really pissed them off. Well, that's their problem. They're a baby. They need to grow up. They have low EQ. Whatever you do to excuse it and make it their problem, because you're not feeling those things. Well, you just made it your problem, first by saying those condescending things and minimalizing them, but Jesus says even if you could escape those attitudes, it's still your problem. And I don't want to hear from you. I don't want you to give your your sacrifice. I don't want to hear you sing. I don't want you to do not take communion here in a moment. If you remember someone else is out there and you could do something to try to mend that fence. Because it's not just getting rid of, of committing murder. There must be a positive. And the kind of people that are redeemed by God, that live up and into the kingdom, are the kind of people that long to be at peace with everyone to the best of their ability. Now, is that possible? Absolutely not. But you've done your due diligence. And so you're offering this, all, this gift, and he says, Stop stop, leave church, get up, go, now, go. There's the door. God doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. Get up, go, go. Someone that you need to call. You're not angry at them, but they're angry at you, and you have not done what you could do. When you're done, you can come back to church. That's what he's saying. Now, the second illustration, he goes on to say, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. You wanna amplify this and you wanna fight and you wanna go, but it's not right. But I didn't do anything. But they're wronging me. And you wanna amplify your position and, and claim your rights? Guess what could happen? You could actually be drawn before the judge and the judge to the bailiff and be thrown in jail until you pay every last penny. What he's saying is this is urgent. Peace with one another in this world, be they Christian sisters or brothers or people in your life, your family, your, your, uh, or just image bearers. Listen, God's people, the children of the kingdom of heaven, are peacemakers. Remember that beatitude? And they do what they can, as much as they can, even going above and beyond, in, in order to pursue a positive goodness and wholeness in their relationships with others, both lost and found alike. They are peacemakers. So do it quickly. 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 Why is that so important? David said in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's not going to hear your worship. He's not going to accept your offering. That's not spiritual worship. So do not regard sin in your heart. Go and make it right. And then, in the classic example of, of Saul, king of Israel, and he had compromised God's commandments, extremely compromised them. And Samuel has to come and rebuke him and say, God's removing the, the kingship from you and giving it to another. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? You're going to bring a sacrifice of praise or, or uh, give some money to the church for the kingdom? Or you're going to take communion as an act of worship? Um has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience and pursuing a genuine goodness of heart is more important than you coming to church. I would rather you not come to church and you live at peace with all people and then come to church. That's what he is saying. It is that important. So do your best to make things right with others you can't always make them right some people will not let you off the hook but you do what you can and then you come and offer your worship you sing you give um to the church you take communion etc etc and here's here's the end just bottom line a righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness that is above the letter beneath the surface and beyond the prohibition amen okay we're going to get ready for communion Zach, if you'd get your guys and start passing that out right now, um, text Sarah because she's coming up from the kidsmen to lead us here. But let me do a double take on the final illustration as we prepare our hearts for communion, okay? What's the final illustration? Final illustration is this come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Not only do I believe that this is an amplification of the urgency with which we are to pursue a positive goodness relationally with others. It's so far beyond just don't murder someone. Run hard after completeness in your relationships. Not only was it an illustration of urgency, but it's also an illustration of the gospel. For we are all going to court with our accuser. This is one of the reasons why Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount to bring a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. I cannot measure up to the standard of the law. There's no chance that I would ever be able to do what Jesus just said. In fact, if it was even possible, I've already blown it 10,000 times in a blind fit of rage. I'm on my way to court called Judgment Day. Who is my accuser? The perfect and beautiful, high and holy standard of God called the law and the prophets. James 2.10 says, he who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. I am condemned. Hebrews 9.27 says that it, it has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's universal for all human beings, no matter what their profession. We're all going with the accuser, and we've all failed. So what are we supposed to do? Try harder, right? Wrong. What are we supposed to do? First off, stop defending yourself and explaining it away. Remember the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Start there. Haven't, didn't, can't. I got nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is the kingdom of heaven. It's only those that are emptied of self righteousness that actually enter the kingdom of heaven. You try to bring Jesus plus self righteousness, you are banned. Jesus plus good works, you're out. You come empty and poor in spirit, and you enter fully. To receive the sacrifice of Jesus as your righteousness. We're about ready to take the elements that represent the broken body on the cross and the shed blood, and we actually get to imbibe them. Isn't that cool? Uh, Think of all the the, uh, ADD little boys that, that Jesus understood Christianity needed some tangible things to help us understand, I am taking Jesus as my own into me. The other illustration is baptized. You actually get to get dunked underwater to to illustrate this is your life. This is your cleansing. This is your sacrifice. So come pour in spirit, receive the Lord Jesus. Can I actually have bread and cup as well up here as I lead? So if someone could just do that. Thanks, Matt. I'm gonna get one of each. So we get to take these things in. Come pour in spirit, Receive the elements, remembering I'm receiving Jesus. And then finally, take heart. Here's the beauty. I could never, never meet this standard of righteousness, but guess what? Not only can he and did he, and I receive him, I get his righteousness, but then guess what happens? This is going to blow your mind. Because I've received him and he is now in me, reminded each month, by the receiving of the elements, I'm reminded, Christ is in me. You know what the scripture says, Colossians one twenty-seven: Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. You are, you're now the, the, the vessel of Jesus, the Christ, and he is transforming me. So come broken, humble, poor in spirit. I got nothing. Receive him freely this morning. Be reminded, maybe you've, maybe you've never received Jesus and it's actually in communion that you go, I believe, I believe he died for me, I believe he rose again. And this is going to be your first act of faith. You're receiving Jesus as your forgiveness. And then finally, to know in your heart, Christ is in me. And guess what? Now, because of a good new heart, I begin to not just meet the standard of the law, I pull a vault way over it because Jesus is in me, changing me. And I'm learning to live up and into the kingdom of heaven. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it. Father, thank you so much for what this represents. Bless this moment as we receive communion. And then he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. We so often forget what that means, but two times that I can think of, I think in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Maybe it's Jeremiah, but God said that I'm going to actually remove a heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh no longer will they say to each other know the lord for they will all know me from the greatest to the least in another place he says i will circumcise the foreskins of their heart i will remove the callous they will have a new heart this is the new covenant purchased in his blood christ in you the hope of glory do this in remembrance of me So, Father, we say thank you. Thank you for shooting straight with us. Thank you for telling us the truth, Jesus. Thank you that it is the law and the the spirit and the whole ramifications of the law that brings us to the gospel. That, Jesus, you fulfilled it and you offer it to us, not only in a covering, but, Lord, to actually transform us that we actually begin to live as these kinds of blessed people oh lord do your work as tyler prayed at the beginning of the service uh the pastoral prayer that we would be these people in the world as salt and light that don't have a shred of anger or bitterness or hatred or murder in our hearts but we love others genuinely from the heart we pray this in jesus precious name Amen. thank you for listening to journey church tucson sermon podcast We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.